يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله سكنتينيو with بلوغ المرام إن كتاب الطهارة وناو the chapter باب نواقد الوضوء the chapter concerning those affairs that nullify the wudu. Those things or those acts, those affairs that nullify the wudu of a person, that break the wudu of a person. And the reason why this particular chapter is here is obvious. Prior to this, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar had been speaking about how to make the wudu the different acts that are performed within the wudu, the manner in which they are performed. Then after that he also mentioned about wiping over the socks, all of those linked to the performance of the wudu. Then after that, clearly he then explains, if you have performed the wudu and you have done the wudu properly, what are those things that can then nullify your wudu afterwards? What are those things that could possibly break your wudu after you have done it? So in this chapter, he's going to explain several different things that are considered to be from the nullifiers of the wudu, from the affairs that would break the wudu of a person. The first hadith that is mentioned in this chapter, the hadith of Anas radiallahu anhu qal, كَانَ أَصْحَابُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ عَلَىٰ أَهْدِهِ يَنْتَظِرُونَ الْعِشَاءِ حَتَّى تَخْفِقَ رُؤُوسُهُمْ ثُمَّ يُسَلُّونَ وَلَا يَتَوَضَّؤُونَ أَخْرَجَهُ أَبُوْ دَاوُدْ وَصَحَّحَهُ الدَّارِ قُتْنِي وَأَصْلُهُ فِي مُسْلِمٍ In this hadith, the hadith of Anas radiallahu anhu, he says that the companions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam during his time, i.e. during when the Prophet sallallahu was alive in those days, they used to be waiting for the Isha prayer. They used to be waiting for the Isha prayer. They used to be waiting for the Prophet ﷺ to come and lead them in the prayer. And whilst they were waiting, their heads would be falling from the tiredness. Their heads would be falling from the tiredness. As you see the people going like this. They were going like this from tiredness, that their heads were nodding. Their heads were nodding down and they were falling down from tiredness. That's the state they were in while they were waiting because of the tiredness at the end of the day. Then they would pray when the Prophet ﷺ would arrive, they would get up and they would pray and they wouldn't make wudu. They wouldn't make wudu even though they had been almost falling asleep, their heads nodding away. But when the Prophet ﷺ used to come, they would get up and they would pray and they wouldn't make wudu again. That's the first hadith that Al-Hafid ibn Hajar mentions in this chapter. So the explanation of that. Firstly, Anas radiallahu anhu, he says that the companions of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. who are the companions? What is the definition of a companion? Who does Anas radiallahu anhu mean when he says the companions of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam? What is the definition of a companion? Met him, believed in his message, and died upon that state. They met him and they believed in his message, and they died upon that state. 
That's what the scholars mention as a definition, that it must be somebody who has met the Prophet ﷺ and he was a believer at the time when he met the Prophet ﷺ. He was a believer at the time he met the Prophet ﷺ. And he died upon that belief, he died upon Islam. So if you look at the categorization, somebody who met the Prophet ﷺ. So if somebody believed in the Prophet ﷺ, he was Muslim, he died a Muslim, he lived at the time when the Prophet ﷺ used to live, but he never met the Prophet ﷺ though. He heard about Islam, he accepted it, he believed in it, he died upon it, but he never had the chance to meet the Prophet ﷺ, even though he lived at the same time. Is that person a companion or not? He's not. It must be somebody who has actually met the Prophet ﷺ. Who's an example of that? A famous example of somebody who believed in Islam, he accepted Islam, believed in the Prophet ﷺ, died upon Islam, lived at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, but never met him. There's a famous example, maybe more famous than that. And Najashi. Najashi, famous example. So he's considered to be from the Tabi'een, even though he lived at the same time. But he never met the Prophet ﷺ. So the first condition is that the person must have met the Prophet ﷺ. You always say somebody who met the Prophet ﷺ. You don't say somebody who saw the Prophet ﷺ. Because there were some companions who were blind. Some of the companions were blind, so they didn't see the Prophet ﷺ. But they met him. So the point is that they met him, even if they didn't see him because they were blind. So somebody who met the Prophet ﷺ. Then, also, he was a believer at the time when he met the Prophet ﷺ. Therefore, people who met the Prophet ﷺ but were not believers are obviously considered as non-companions. They are not companions. Like Abu Jahl, Abu Lahab, all of those disbelievers who saw the Prophet ﷺ, they met the Prophet ﷺ, but they didn't believe in him. So they are not considered to be companions. It must be somebody who met the Prophet ﷺ and believed in him at the time of meeting him. The third condition, that the person dies upon Islam. He dies upon that belief. Meaning, if somebody met the Prophet ﷺ, he believed in him at the time when he met him, he was a Muslim when he met him, but then afterwards, the Prophet ﷺ died, and this particular person became an apostate. And he died as an apostate. Do we say he's a companion or not? He's not. Because he's only fulfilled two of the three conditions. He's fulfilled the condition that he met the Prophet ﷺ. He's fulfilled the condition that he met him when he was a Muslim, he was a believer at the time. But he hasn't fulfilled the third condition which is that he died upon Islam. He died upon Kufar. So he is not a companion. What about somebody meets the Prophet ﷺ, he's a believer at the time when he met him, he dies upon Islam, but in between he apostates. He met the Prophet ﷺ, he was a believer when he met him, afterwards he apostated. Then afterwards, he became a Muslim again and died upon Islam in the end. Companion or not? Mm -hmm. You mean he has to have seen him again? But when he accepted Islam again, but didn't see him after that, companion or not? Uh, no. mm. If he's not met him, then he's not. The scholars, they differed about it. There's a difference on this issue. Somebody who 
met the Prophet ﷺ, he was a believer at the time when he met him, but then he apostated. But then afterwards he became Muslim again and died upon Islam. So technically he's fulfilled the conditions. Technically he met him whilst he was a believer and he died upon Islam. But it's in between where he apostated, that's the issue. Because it says in the Quran, the ayah, وَمَنْ يَرْتَدِدْ مِنْكُمْ عَنْ دِينِهِ فَيَمُتْ وَهُوَ كَافِرٌ فَأُولَٰئِكَ حَبِطَتْ أَعْمَالُهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ That those from amongst you who apostate from the religion, then they die as disbelievers, then those ones, all of their actions are fallen in this world and in the hereafter. وَأُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ They are the people of the hellfire, هُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ They will remain therein forever. So here it says clearly, whoever apostates, his actions, they fall down, they are finished. So, the scholars differed. Exactly. Some of the scholars, they said, this ayah says, whoever apostates and then dies upon that apostasy, then his actions are finished. But what about somebody who apostates, but then comes back to Islam? Then are his actions finished? Then the scholars said no. In that case, his actions come back to him. Some of the scholars said, then in that case, it's okay. So the strongest opinion about that is, that if somebody met the Prophet ﷺ, believed in him at the time when he met him, even if he apostated afterwards, as long as he came back to Islam, and then died upon Islam later, he's considered a companion. That is the strongest opinion, and that is what uh, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar himself mentioned in the other book of his, Nukhbat uh, al-Fikr, the book in the sciences of hadith. He said, A sahabi man laqiya an nabiya sallallahu mu'minan bihi wa mata ala dhalika walaw takhallalat riddatun fil asah. That the companion is the one who met the Prophet sallallahu believed in him, and died upon that state, even if in between he apostated. So that is the strongest opinion concerning who a companion is. So here Anas radiallahu anhu says that the companions of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ during his lifetime. Why does he specify this issue that this was during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ that this hadith is going to be talking about? Because one of the types of sunnah is the acknowledgement of the Prophet ﷺ. Sunnah can be the statements of the Prophet ﷺ, it can be the actions of the Prophet ﷺ, and it can also be the acknowledgement of the Prophet ﷺ, meaning the taqreer. Meaning that if some of the companions did something, they did some particular action, they did some particular obedience. And the Prophet ﷺ was alive at that time. And he was aware that the companions were doing this. And he never told them off. The fact that the Prophet ﷺ didn't advise them against that action or tell them this is wrong, therefore indicates what they were doing was Correct. Because if what they were doing was wrong, then obviously the Prophet would have told them, this way of doing your worship is wrong. So when the companions used to do things whilst the Prophet was alive, and the Prophet never rejected those actions from them, it indicated that those actions are correct. Because if they were wrong, and the Prophet was still alive, and the revelation was still coming down, then it would have been clarified that these actions are wrong there and then. So here Anas says, عنه, this was when the Prophet was alive, therefore indicating this is an evidence. Because if it wasn't, then the Prophet would have told them there and then this is wrong. So he didn't. That therefore means he acknowledged that. He accepted that and affirmed that. 
Um, so he says, Yantaviruna al Isha, the companions, they used to be waiting for the Isha prayer. They used to be waiting because the Prophet ﷺ used to love, used to prefer to delay the Isha prayer. The Isha prayer, it is preferred to delay it. The time of the Isha prayer, as it's known, it begins from the disappearance of Ashrafaq al Ahmar. When the redness of the horizon it disappears, when the sun sets, when the sun sets and it's gone down, even after it has set and it's gone down, there are still some rays of light left on the horizon. There is still some redness and orange color left on the horizon, even after the sun has gone down. It's there. When that disappears as well, that's when Isha begins. When those final few rays of light disappear completely, even though the sun has already gone down, they remain. But when they disappear too completely, then Isha begins. However, the Prophet ﷺ used to prefer to delay Isha beyond that time. That's when it begins. But the Prophet ﷺ used to prefer to delay it up until the third of the night or to delay it for some amount of time. So the companions, they used to be waiting for the Prophet ﷺ to come to pray. They used to be waiting and the Prophet ﷺ used to prefer to delay it. However, it should be mentioned that even though that is what is preferred to delay the Isha prayer, it is with a condition or it is with an understanding as the scholars have mentioned that if the congregation are able to do that, if that is easy for the congregation to stay up a little bit later, to delay the Isha prayer, to pray it a bit later into the third of the night, or up to the third of the night, then that is something good to do. But if that is difficult for the congregation, and it's uh, a problematic for the congregation, for the people praying, then it shouldn't be done. And that's why often the Prophet ﷺ used to pray Isha at the beginning time, often. But sometimes he would delay it. Sometimes he would delay it. So on this occasion, it's mentioned that the prayer was delayed. And so the companions, they were waiting for him to come. This is also an evidence to prove that the imam who is the fixed imam of a masjid, he has the right to lead the prayer. The fixed imam of the masjid, if there is a fixed imam, then he has the right to lead the prayer. If he was late, then what do people normally do? For example, Asr is at quarter past five, for example. And if there was a fixed imam in this masjid, for example, and it gets to 5.17 or 5.16, 5.17, what do people do? What do people do? That's it. They do the iqamah and they say, you go, you go, somebody lead the prayer. And maybe 5.18 the imam walks in. That's not correct. Really in the sunnah, if there's a fixed imam, you should wait. Wait two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. Asr is not going to finish at 5.20. You can wait. You should wait for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes for the imam to come. Unless you are aware, you are aware, you know that the imam isn't coming today. You know, for example, he's ill, he's in hospital. So you know he's not coming. In that case, pray straight away. Or the imam has told you he's not coming today. Then pray. Or the imam has uh, maybe appointed someone. He said, I'm not coming, I'm appointing someone. Then he pray. But if there's no reason, he's just a bit late. He's not giving you any reason. Nobody knows that he's not going to come. It just so happens that he's late by a minute or two. Then it's not right what people do that they straight away say to someone, that's it, it's time. You lead, you lead. Rather, you're supposed to wait for the imam. 
Give him some time. If it appears after a while he really isn't coming, then pray. But you should wait for a moment, wait for a while. And this is what the companions they were doing. This is from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that they would wait for him. They wouldn't just say, one of us need now, the Prophet ﷺ isn't coming. Rather, they would wait for the Prophet ﷺ to come to lead in the prayer. Uh, and they would be tired at that time. Because the companions during the day, they had their work, they had their fields, they had their agriculture, the type of work that many of them used to do. So after that day of work, when it came to the time of Isha, they would be tired. So when they were sitting, waiting for the prayer, they would become tired and sleep would start to overcome them. To the extent that their heads would be nodding. They would be nodding from that tiredness. Then after that it's mentioned that the Prophet would come and the salah would be, the iqama would be done and they would just get up and pray. Which therefore indicates that a person who is falling into light sleep, as you do when you do, when the head starts to nod like this, then you're falling into that light sleep. This hadith seems to indicate therefore that somebody who falls into that light sleep, his wudu breaks or doesn't break? Doesn't break. Because the companions, they were falling into that light sleep, that tiredness and their heads were nodding, but still they would get up and they would pray without having to make wudu. So therefore the hadith indicates that that light sleep doesn't break your wudu. But it's an issue the scholars have differed about. The issue of sleep. What type of sleep breaks your wudu? What type of sleep doesn't break your wudu? And there are opinions and the scholars have mentioned different things. They even mention things about how you are sleeping. Some of the scholars say if you are sitting up, you are sitting upright, that's different compared to if you were lying down. And the ruling is different. If you were asleep like this, sitting up, or if you were asleep lying down. The scholars they say it's different. And they make different rulings. So there are differences about the issue. Basically, you have one opinion which says that sleeping, sleeping, whatever type of sleep, whether it's light sleep or it's deep sleep, one opinion says that your wudu breaks. And again, they make some differentiation about the position you are in, etc., but that's one general opinion. The other general opinion is that sleep does not break your wudu at all. One general opinion states that sleep does not break your wudu at all. But the correct opinion which is in between those opinions is, which the Shaykh says is the rajih also, uh, and this is what Al-Imam Ahmed mentioned, Al-Imam Malik mentioned, and others mentioned, أَنَّ النَّوْمَ الْكَثِيرَ الَّذِي فِيهِ اسْتِغْرَاقَ فَهَذَا الَّذِي يَنْقُضُ الْوُضُوءَ كَمَا فِي حَدِيثِ صَفْوَانِ وَغَيْرِهِ They said that if it is deep sleep, and deep sleep is the type of sleep where you cannot recognize anything around you anymore. Deep sleep, when you're in deep sleep, you can't hear people talking. You can't hear people walking around. You have no senses in deep sleep. But in light sleep, somebody might be lightly sleeping... And they can still hear what's going on around them. But their eyes are closed and the sleep and the tiredness has overcome them. But they can still vaguely hear things and sounds and somebody walks past them, they can hear it in their mind. That's light sleep, they're not in deep sleep yet. So this is the difference. The scholars, they say if it is deep sleep, you've lost your senses, you don't hear anything, you don't feel anything, you're in that deep sleep, your wudu is broken. And that's mentioned, uh, they use the hadith that we already mentioned, the hadith of 
Safwan ibn Asal, where he mentioned about the three things that break the wudu, illa min ghait wa bawl wa nawm, except from going to the toilet or sleeping. If you have to go to the toilet for either uh, urine or otherwise, or if you fall asleep, then that breaks your wudu. So here the scholars, they say, the deep sleep breaks your wudu. As for light sleep, where you still have some degree of perception, you still have your senses to some degree, you're in a light type of sleep, somebody barely touches you, you wake up, you're not really fully asleep, you still have sense of what's going on, then that type of light sleep, the scholars they say, it doesn't break your wudu. But based upon this hadith, where the companions were in a form of light sleep, where their heads were nodding and the tiredness was overcoming them. But they weren't completely asleep. They weren't in deep sleep. It was a light sleep. And that, the scholars say, does not break your wudu, as this uh, hadith also seems to indicate. Because in that state of light sleep, you still have some perception of what's going on. You still have some degree of your senses. Whereas in the deep sleep, you do not have that. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned, وَهُوَ الَّذِي يَتَوَفَّاكُمْ بِاللَّيْلِ That He is the one who brings death upon you at night. That's why they say that sleeping, deep sleep, is the minor type of death. It's as if the person is dead. Minor, minor death. Because the soul will return to that person. So that is the difference. The scholars, they mention about the sleep. And that's what this hadith indicates. Therefore, the conclusion would be that deep sleep, it breaks your wudu. Whereas light sleep, where you still have perception of what's going on, that doesn't break your wudu. After that, the second hadith, حديث of عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت جاءت فاطمة بنت أبي حبيش إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقالت يا رسول الله إني امرأة استحاض فلا أطهر أفأدع الصلاة قال لا إنما ذلك عرق وليس بحيض فإذا أقبلت حيضتك فدعي الصلاة وإذا أدبرت فاغسلي عنك الدم ثم صلي متفق عليه وللبخاري ثم توضأ لكل صلاة وأشار مسلم إلى أنه حضفها عمدا. In this hadith, Aisha رضي الله عنها narrates that Fatima, the daughter of Abi Hubeish, came to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and she said, "O Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم, I am a woman استحاض. استحاض meaning that blood exits from me, but not the period blood." Not the blood of the uh, menstruation. That is the monthly cycle. That blood which comes at a fixed time in every month for five or six or seven or eight days approximately. Not that blood. Ustahadu is blood which comes outside of that. Outside of the period. So she says, I have this blood which comes from me, which exits from me. Which is outside of the normal period. And that type of blood sometimes, it can continually come out. It can continually exit from some women because of illness or because of some other injury or for some other reason this other type of blood may continually come out of a, come from the woman. So she said, this occurs to me. And I can't purify myself. Every time I make wudu, meaning the, I can't purify myself, it continues to keep coming out this blood. So even if I make wudu, then it comes out again whilst I'm praying or before the prayer and therefore I'm impure again. So, do I leave the prayer, she said. Remember now, this is not the period. The period, clear. You don't pray, you don't fast, that's clear. This is now blood outside of the period. 
abnormal blood which exits from the woman. She said, what do I do? Do I not pray for that type of blood too then? So then the Prophet ﷺ said, لا إنما ذلك عرق وليس بحي. He said, no, that is عرق meaning like it's a vein or an artery or something which has occurred because of this illness or because of uh, some injury to the vein or the artery, etc. That's that. وَلَيْسَ بِحَيْبٍ And it's not your period. فَإِذَا أَقْبَلَتْ حَيْبَتُكِ Then if your period comes, then you can leave the prayer. And if it finishes, wash the blood and then pray. So here the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the ruling with regards to this issue in this hadith. We'll look at the explanation here now. Firstly, the scholars they say this indicates that there is no shyness in learning about your religion. Here, Fatima bint Abi Hubaysh, she came to the Prophet ﷺ and she asked him about this blood which exits from her. This blood which is not the period blood but another type of blood. This abnormal blood which exits from the woman outside of the normal cycle. So she came to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him about it. Therefore indicating that there is no shyness when learning about your religion. She wanted to know, what's the ruling? Do I pray? Do I not pray? What do I do in this state? And there is no shyness when learning about the religion and about the obedience to Allah and how it should be done. And that is why it's mentioned in one narration that Aisha radiallahu anha, she mentioned that how good are these women that they do not have shyness in learning about their religion. Because shyness is good. But not good if it's going to prevent you from learning your religion. So here it did not prevent them from learning their religion. So she said to the Prophet ﷺ that I have this istihada. istihada خُرُوجُ الدَّمْ فِي غَيْرُ وَقْتِهِ It is the blood which comes out of a woman outside of the normal time. Outside of the normal period. And it is a blood وَهُوَ دَمٌ نَاتِجٌ عَنْ مَرَضٍ أَوْ نَزِيفٍ it is a blood which comes out because of some illness to the woman, some unhealthy issue with the woman for example, some illness, some uh, bacteria, whatever it may be, some virus, or because of a bleed, internal bleed, uh, with arteries or veins, something along those lines, something of that nature causes this blood to exit from the woman outside of the period. And it is not the period, because the period has specific times. Typically, typically there are specific times within the month, and that is known to the woman. So this is not the natural blood. This is an abnormal type of blood. So the Prophet said to her, No, this is not your period. This is an abnormal type of blood because of the veins or the arteries or some type of bleeding that's occurring. It's not your period. This is a different type of bleeding. So therefore the Prophet made a distinction between them. There is a distinction between the normal period blood and the abnormal blood which comes or exits outside of that normal period blood. So when it came to this type, which is not the period blood, the Prophet ﷺ said, no, you do not leave the prayer. You carry on with the prayer. You continue. Why was she asking in the first place? Because the norm which was understood from the Sharia is that when you have the bleeding, the period bleeding, then you don't pray. So based upon that, she was asking, is this type of blood the same thing then? It's not the period blood, but is it the same ruling? Do I not pray for this one too? But then the Prophet ﷺ explained to her, no, this is different, it is not the period. For this one you continue to pray. 
then the Prophet said to her, if your actual period comes, that's when you leave your prayer, that's when you stop the prayer. And when that actual period finishes, then you wash yourself, wash the blood, and then you can pray thereafter once again. And the hadith is muttafaqun alayhi. And in one wording of this hadith, the Prophet said to her, Make wudu for every prayer. When you are in this state where this abnormal bleeding is occurring, it's not the period, it's outside of that. This abnormal bleeding is occurring, then in that time when this abnormal bleeding is occurring, this unusual bleeding is occurring, then make wudu for every prayer. Because that is a type of blood which comes out continuously. It may be continuously coming out the whole of the day. So for every prayer, the Prophet said, make wudu and pray. That therefore indicates that this abnormal type of blood which exits from a woman is one of the things that breaks the wudu. It's one of the things that nullifies the wudu, but it doesn't prevent you from the prayer. The proper period, that prevents you from the prayer. But this abnormal bleeding, it is not something that prevents you from the prayer, but it is something that nullifies the wudu, and it breaks the wudu. So when this abnormal bleeding occurs, then the ruling is that the woman, she makes wudu for every prayer, and she prays. How can you tell the difference? One is, the scholars have mentioned, because of the timings. Normally, normally the woman is aware of the timings of the normal cycle. And she is aware when that period is going to occur. So that would be able to distinguish for her if this is that or if it is something abnormal. If it came at a completely unusual time, then that might be an indicator that this is not the normal period, this is something else. Also, there is an actual difference in the type of blood. So it is mentioned that the period blood, that is a thick type of blood. It is thick and it is dark and it has a smell to it. Whereas this abnormal blood, it is light and it is red, like a more brighter color. And it doesn't have that smell. So the characteristics of the two types of blood are different, which would be able to uh, inform the woman which type of bleeding this is. The thick, dark bleeding with a smell to it is typically the period blood. Light, bright, red type of bleeding, which doesn't have smell to it, is this abnormal type of bleeding. Because the scholars have mentioned, this abnormal bleeding, it doesn't come from the inner womb of the woman. It is external bleeding that comes from the veins and the arteries at the bottom of the womb, etc. But the period is the blood which comes from the depths of the inner of the woman. And therefore the blood is different types. And that's how somebody can work out which type it is. Some of the issues mentioned in this hadith then. Firstly, the shaykh says, as we mentioned, that shyness does not prevent you from learning about your religion. Secondly, also the shaykh says that whenever something is difficult for you, then you return to the people of knowledge to find out. في الحديث دليل على وجوب سؤال أهل العلم عند المشكلات. That you ask the people of knowledge when you have some difficulties or some affairs that you are not aware of. وَلَا يُرْجَعُ فِي أُمُورِ الدِّينِ إِلَىٰ عَادَاتِ النَّاسِ And you don't just go back to the traditions of the people. Often what people do is if something is complicated, something is difficult, they don't know what to do, they just ask around and whatever the people are doing, they just do it as well. They just say, well, people normally do such and such in this situation, we'll just do it too. The shaykh says that's not the way you do it. 
The religion isn't about just following the traditions and the cultures of the people. If you don't know how to do something, you ask the people of knowledge and you look to the evidences. That is something from the benefits of the hadith too. Also from the benefits of the hadith is that we understand the period blood and the abnormal blood are two different types. They are not the one and the same thing. They are two different things. And therefore the ruling is different. For the period, the prayer is left. For this abnormal bleeding, the wudu is made and the prayer is done. The prayer is prayed and performed. Uh, also, in the hadith, the benefits which are indicated within it, fil hadith dalilun ala wujubi ghasl dam wa annahu shartun salah. That a woman, after she finishes a period, she must wash all of that blood and wash her clothes and make herself pure. And that is from the conditions of the prayer to remove that blood because that particular type of blood which exits, then it is a type of impurity that must be washed away and cleaned before. The person can pray before the woman can pray. Also, from the benefits of the hadith, that this type of abnormal bleeding, it is one of the things, it is one of the things that breaks your wudu. Because of the narration of Al-Bukhari, where the Prophet ﷺ said, you must make wudu for every prayer. Make the wudu for every prayer. Another thing that the Shaykh mentions, في الحديث دليل على أن من كان حدثه دائما كالمستحاضة التي يسيل منها الدم باستمرار ومن أصيب بسلس البول الذي ينزل بوله باستمرار ماذا يفعل وماذا يعمل? The Shaykh says, what about somebody who has this abnormal type of bleeding which sometimes is continuous? It continues to keep coming, continues to keep exiting from the woman. She goes and makes wudu. By the time she comes back to pray, it's already exiting again. Then what she's supposed to do? Every time she makes wudu, she comes back, it's already exiting again. Or for example, somebody who has uh, those illnesses that are linked to the urine, that a person continuously has to keep urinating. Or for example, breaking wind. There are certain types of illnesses that make this occur. So every time he makes wudu, before he can start praying, or as, as soon as he starts praying, his wudu breaks again. For somebody who has these types of illnesses, or this type of bleeding, whereby his wudu continuously keeps breaking. He can't hold it for more than a few minutes. Every time he makes the wudu, he comes back, he starts to try to pray, the wudu breaks again. So what does a person do in that situation? Here the shaykh says, إِذَا حَضَرَتِ الصَّلَاءِ وَيَتَوَضَّى If the time for the prayer comes, he makes the istinja, the cleaning of the private area, and then afterwards he makes the wudu, وَيُسَلِّ فِي الْحَالِ And then he just prays. وَلَوْ خَرَجَ مِنْهُ الْخَارِجُهُ يُسَلِّ فَصَلَاتُهُ صَحِحَةً So the person goes and makes the istinja, washes himself and cleans himself in the private area. Then after that, he makes the wudu. Then he comes and he starts to pray. If whilst he's praying, his urine exits, or his, uh, sometimes they have the problem with the, and they have the bags, etc. Or wind breaks, or the blood exits from the woman. And they are those people who have this illness that continuously keeps happening. Once he's made the istinja, he's made the wudu, he comes and starts praying. Even if it breaks, he carries on praying and he finishes and his prayer is okay. Because there's nothing else he can do. You can't say to him, no, go back and make your wudu. He would be going back and forward all day. And he would never be able to finish his prayer. Because as soon as he starts, he breaks again. He goes back, as soon as he starts, he breaks again. So for that one, he makes the istinja, he makes the wudu, he comes back and he prays. Even if in the middle of the prayer it so happens that it breaks again, it doesn't matter. 
In that situation now, he completes the prayer and it's correct. فَلَوْ تَوَضَّأَتِ الْمُسْتَحَادَةَ أَوْ تَوَضَّأَ بِهِ تَوَضَّأَ مَنْ بِهِ سَلِسِ الْبَوْ ثُمَّ شَرْعَ فِي الصَّلَاةِ ثُمَّ نَزَلَ الدَّمْ أَوِ الْبَوْ فَإِنَّهُ يَسْتَمِرُ فِي صَلَاتِهِ وَيَسْحِحَا So if a woman who has this uh, abnormal bleeding or a person who has some type of illness where the urine or the wind etc. continuously breaks, then he goes and makes the istinja, the wudu, comes and starts praying, even if it goes uh, in the middle of that, his prayer is correct. And that is because Allah stated in the Qur'an, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وَسْعَهَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not burden a person greater than what he is able. Allah does not burden a person greater than what he is able. And similarly, فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ مَسْتَطَعْتُمْ Fear Allah to the ability that you have. Fear Allah to the best of your abilities. And for these types of people with these illnesses, that is the best of their ability. They make the wudu and they come and they try to pray and hopefully they can finish and if they cannot, that's the best of their ability. And the prayer is correct and it is accepted. Uh, there are some narrations that say that a woman who has this abnormal bleeding, which is outside of the normal period, there are some narrations that say she has to make a ghusl for every prayer. Those narrations are not established. Those narrations are not established that she has to make the ghusl for every prayer. Rather, what is established is that she only has to make the wudu for every prayer. After that, we have the hadith of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu qal, Kuntu rajulan madha' فَأَمَرْتُ الْمِقْدَادَ بْنِ الْأَسْوَدْ أَنْ يَسْأَلَ النَّبِيَّ صلى الله عليه وسلم فَسَأَلَهُ فَقَالْ فِيهِ الْوُضُوءِ مُتَّفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ وَالْلَفْضُ لِلْبُخَارِ This hadith of Ali ibn Abi Talib and in fact in the hadith at the beginning all it says is uh, in fact, nah. if you see any narration which says عن علي then the meaning of it is quite clearly Ali ibn Abi Talib رضي الله عنه he says كُنْتُ رَجُلًا مَذَّا مَذَّاءَ سِيغَةُ مُبَالَغَةَ يَعْنِ كَثِيرُ الْمَذِي وَالْمَذِي سَائِلٌ لَزِجٌ يَخْرُجُ مِنَ الذَّكَرِ عِنْدَ مُلَاعَبَةِ الزَّوْجَةِ عِنْدَ تَذَكُّرِ الْجِمَاعِ أو التَّفْكِيرِ فِيهِ وَأَكْثَرُ مَا يَكُونُ فِي الشَّبَابِ نَظَرًا لِقُوَّةِ شَهْوَةِ فِيهِمْ وَكَانَ عَلِيٌّ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ شَابًا حِينَئِذٍ وَكَانَ كَثِيرُ الْمَذِي رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ لِقُوَّةِ الشَّبَابِ فِيهِ عَلِي بْنُ أَبِي طَالِبٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ he says and this was the time when he was a young man he says that I am an individual who has رَجُلًا مَذَّاءً مَذَّاءً meaning that the mavi exits from him. The mavi is another type of liquid that exits from a person but not the semen. It is not the semen. It is another type of flowing liquid which exits from the private area, from the private frontal, private parts of a male but it is not the semen itself. A person, if he was to engage in intimate contact, for example, or other types of uh, affairs that would arise from it, the desire, then this particular type of liquid may exit, but it's not the semen. It's known as mavi. It's a clear type of liquid that would exit from an individual. That type of liquid would exit from him. So he sent... Uh, Al-Miqdad, he sent him to ask the Prophet ﷺ. He sent Al-Miqdad ibn Aswad to ask the Prophet ﷺ about that. When this type of liquid exits from the body, then what's the ruling on that? 
It is mentioned that Ali ibn Abi Talib used to make ghusl for every prayer. When that liquid used to exit from him, he used to make ghusl for every prayer. Because he used to think that the ghusl is just, uh, that the mavi, this type of liquid, is the same as the mani, the semen. He used to think it's the same as the semen, it exits from the same body part, with that desire, etc. So maybe it's the same ruling. He used to make the ghusl. But then, when he sent Al-Miqdad to ask the Prophet ﷺ about this, then the Prophet ﷺ said to him that with regards to this, what you have to do is wudu. This type of liquid, which is not the semen. It's another liquid, clear type of liquid prior to that. All you have to do for that is to make the wudu. خروج المذي يوجب الوضو فقط لا يوجب الغسل It is only the wudu that you have to do, not the full ghusl. So in this hadith, again, one of the benefits of it are that you return back to the people of knowledge when you do not know. فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. So Ali ibn Abi Talib, he sought the knowledge from the Prophet ﷺ. Also, the hadith indicates that it is permissible to have someone ask on your behalf. It's possible if you were not able to do it yourself for whatever reason. It's possible you can ask somebody to go and ask on your behalf. As Ali ibn Abi Talib sent Al-Miqdad ibn Aswad to go and ask on his behalf. Also, the hadith indicates, which is the point of it, that the mavi, this, uh, this type of liquid, this clear type of liquid that exits from a male, from the man, is something which... Wudu is required for it, therefore indicating that it is something which is a nullifier of the wudu. It nullifies your wudu, and therefore wudu needs to be made from it. But it is not the same as semen, and therefore you do not have to make the full ghusl if that liquid came out. That liquid does not uh, cause the ghusl, but it causes for the wudu to have to be made. In some narrations it is also mentioned that if this liquid exited, then you need to make the istinja too. You need to wash the private areas too if that liquid exited. Wash and clean the private areas properly and then make the wudu on top of that. But still not the full ghusl though. That's what's mentioned concerning that type of liquid that exits from a person. So that is the first three. The sleep... If it is deep sleep, it breaks your wudu. If it is light sleep, it does not. Then after that, the abnormal blood. That is something that breaks the wudu. But a woman just makes the wudu and prays. And the third type now is this liquid, the madhi, which is not the semen prior to the semen. And again, that breaks the wudu, it nullifies the wudu. So you need to make the wudu and pray. Or make the istinja first too. And then the wudu and then pray. And that is the first section concerning the things that nullify the wudu. And we'll carry on from the next section of hadith next time, inshallah, which will be on the issues of kissing, for example. Does kissing break the wudu of a person? Uh, also with regards to breaking wind and these types of affairs, or touching the private parts, these issues, do they break the wudu, do they nullify the wudu or not? Those ahadith, inshallah, will begin with uh, tomorrow, inshallah.